Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. So I just got his title correct. So he is a wildlife research biologist for the U.S. Geological Survey. Um, but he is also uh, one of the professors or teaching at the University of Idaho. And among many other things, he has a bachelor's or master's and a PhD from the University of Montana. Uh, David Osband, thank you so much for joining us. That was a mouthful to begin with. How are you doing, sir? Good, good. Thanks for asking. And thanks for inviting me. I was kind of looking into to what you guys do after you sent me the email. And it's uh, pretty cool work and needed. Thank so, you. Glad thanks. you're here. No, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. I know it's been a it's been a crazy back and forth and, and and some time in between, but I'm I'm glad we were able to to corral you and get you here. So just give everybody a little bit of a background because it seems like the majority of work of your work is uh, concentrated in carnivore ecology, wolves, mountain lions, etc. How did you get involved in that line of work? What was your how did you get started? Uh, uh good question. Um, well, maybe two events. So one, my dad used to take me fishing in Canada when I was a kid. And uh, we were at this like rundown little store one day. And my dad asked the lady who owns it, um, are there wolves, you know, near our cabin that we were staying at? And uh, <laughs> she said, yeah, they, they come down and run around those hills every night to hunt. I mean, she was probably full of crap. But uh, to a kid, I remember like standing on the end of the dock and like, I remember vividly like looking at those hills and like, wow, like I didn't kind of didn't even know what a wolf was. Um, but it was so neat to me and I don't, I don't really know why. Um, and then the second thing I was, uh, I was doing my undergrad at Penn state university and, uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to major in. I was just kind of floating around getting bad grades and wasting money. Um, and I went to see my, my like, advisor person for my undergrad he's like well you need to pick a major um what are you interested in i i like didn't know there was a field called wildlife biology so that's how like naive i was and i was like i don't know i like animals maybe maybe i can major in mammalogy and he uh (laughs) he he kind of laughed and said uh he's just like looked out at my transcripts and he's like what's that's a lot of science and math and i don't think you want to do that (laughs) i love it so I kind of took offense to that. <laughs> and maybe it put a chip on my shoulder. I don't know. But those two things I remember vividly for like, like weird motivation, I guess, to yeah follow what I was super interested in, which is carnivores. And I have no idea why. I think a lot of people are, right? So not that surprising. Man. Well, for somebody who was told by someone else that math and science were not your strong suits. I mean, you flip that on its head. I mean, really to, to do, to get all the, the, the degrees you have right now, I think, you know, whoever that person is in Penn state, you know, I think you, you motivated Dave, Dave, that's all that matters. <laughs> that was, that's crazy, man. So tell everybody too, like, so you get there and you, you have this, whatever, like you said, chip on your shoulder and all this other stuff. So what was that like? Where are you from? Are you originally from the East Coast? And what was that like transitioning out West? If you, you know, going to Montana University and, or University of Montana, how was that? Yeah, good question. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania. That's how I ended up at Penn State. It was like, oh, okay, well, if people go to college, that's where they go, right? Um, 
but I just kind of, I took a road trip with my friend after he got out of the army actually. And I we went to Yellowstone and Montana and Alaska and all that stuff in his little three cylinder Geo Metro with like not enough money to get into Canada, according to the border crossing person. Um, but we went anyway. So I just like fell in love with those places. And uh, yeah, one day I realized like, oh, I can go to school out there. And Montana at the time was one of the cheaper schools. So that basically influenced my choice. I didn't happen to know that they had one of the top wildlife programs in the country. I just kind of got lucky. Um, but, but yeah, then when I got to Montana, I just kind of started calling around to volunteer because they were, um, you know, a lot of, there weren't many wolves around at the time. Like Montana had maybe 70 wolves when I moved there. It wasn't many, but they had, um, the federal office for wolf recovery was in Helena, Montana. So it was close enough that I could drive over and bug people about giving me a job. So it was just kind of old school, like go pester people till they relent finally. <laughs> uh, that's great, man. No, you're a go-getter. I love this stuff. I mean, that's, <laughs> you never realize how people get into things. I mean, we, we interviewed one of the biologists from, from Yellowstone, who's there now currently, and his name's Jeremy Sundaraj. And he, got into wanting to study wolves by going through Yellowstone and witnessing a wolf kill on the side of the road and then eating, I think, the elk or the deer on the side of the road. And that just, it triggered him to say, yep, this is what I want to do with my life to, you know, more or less, you know, here or there. But it's just incredible how people find their, their niche. So what exactly is behavioral ecology and how does it factor into the, the science of carnivores and what you're studying on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so simply, I guess it's the, you know, study of behavior um, against the backdrop of the environment in which an animal lives. So, and, and ultimately we're interested in how those behaviors affect survival and reproduction. Right. So like um, I'm trying to think of an example. So, so say wolves, they move their pups periodically in the summertime. So say that behavior, we'd be interested in how that differs in cool, wet summers versus say a hot, dry one like we're having now. And how does that ultimately affect those decisions to move or not move pups? How does that affect pup survival in the end? So it's kind of linking the, the stage on which they live with the decisions they're making on a day-to-day basis. So this type of work is, is it looking equally at the environment around the species and, and how they interact with it? Like, like you, you might not say it's a broad study of the species. It's just as much tied into where exactly you're doing the research. Yeah. So, so I guess when I say environment, it includes, you know, like you're, I think you're alluding to a spatial context. Mm-hmm. So, like a map, like where are they on a map? But I also mean by environment, like other competitors in the system. Uh, I mean, environment in like a loose, a loose term to encompass. Yeah. The stage on which they're performing everything. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's kind of what I mean by that term. I use it. Maybe not how anyone else. uses it. <laughs> no, that's crazy. So what did you, so what do you notice then as you're doing, your undergrad work, you get in, you get in, and you, and you start working. Did you start out at, at the geological, the the USGA, or did you 
you know, how did you weave yourself into where you are now? Was it, you know, did the bugging of people at the Wolf Research Center, you know, work out where you got to volunteer or to do an internship or things? So how did you kind of get the roadmap? How did your roadmap continue? Yeah, good question again. Um, so volunteered a little bit for um, a guy named Tom Meyer, rest in peace. He was the biologist in Denali Park until several years ago. Uh, but he was one of the people on Wolf Recovery in Northwest Montana. So he would let me ride around in a truck with him and open gates and, you know, pump gas. <laughs> um, but, you know, it never like, cause everybody and their brother wants to study wolves. It didn't like work out. So I, my first like paid job was on swift foxes, mm. which is a little fox on the prairie in Montana. In, in this case, um, and they were reintroduced to the Blackfeet Indian reservation. And that project, yeah, again, was just kind of like bugging people, calling people and like, hey, you know, do you want to give me a job? And then it, like the lady said, yes. And then she said it paid, wow. which I was like, wow. <laughs> well, now we can get into Canada. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it paid a little bit of money and that project ended up becoming my master's. Uh and boy, how do I make a long story short? I finished my master's and my wife was like way pregnant with our son. Um, and I got this job at the University of Montana working with the Nez Perce tribe to develop uh, ways, new ways to count and monitor wolves. And I honestly have no idea how I got that job. Maybe my wife poisoned off all the other <laughs> candidates, but like somehow I got She's that job. Wife. So. But yeah. <laughs> uh, before we get on to some more specifics, um, what what would you consider your favorite part of the job, and what's something that maybe people would not expect about it? What what's something that might surprise people? Yeah, man, great question. Um, I actually really like. Uh, so every summer we have a bunch of like I have field projects, so I hire a bunch of. 20 year olds that are ready for abuse and we send them out in the woods to look for carnivores, which is kind of hard. Um, but I like, like the mentoring and getting to see them grow and learn. And especially with, you know, my grad students get to see that progression and, um, they end up, it's just cool to see like they're way better than I was when I was at their stage. Right. Like, by like, it's just like an evolution of students that just get better and better. It's, kind of wild to see um so i like that part of it um what what part would surprise people um i think for field work one thing field work in particular one thing people are always surprised at is that wolves are um uh, when it comes to humans anyway they're kind of uh shy like i've walked up to wolves in traps and i i used to back in the day when we were trapping for to put collars out um i'd be by myself a lot and you have a big you have a big jab stick right and it, it can be six or eight feet long and it's it's got drugs on the end that you don't want to get in you by yourself so if the wolf had a lot of like room to move around in the trap um i didn't want to get tripped up so i would i could just happen one day i started talking to the like i started talking out loud to the wolf like hey you know, calm down kind of thing. And uh, she sat down and she turned away from me and I just hand injected her. Like I took the, I reloaded the syringe and just 
walked up and put it in her butt. Um, and I started doing that after that, whenever they had room to like run around, I thought I might get tangled up with them. I would talk to them and they just like, kind of like, didn't know what to do. Like they kind of freak out. And so they're really kind of, um, I mean, I'll say shy. Some people might say cowardly. I don't, I don't know which one's a better term, but they're not the grimacing, like teeth bearing thing you see. Um, at least not that I've encountered in 15 years of doing this. What's that like for you evolving that technique and that relationship? Cause you're going from, I assume a lot of book learning, teaching things of that sort. And then when you get in the field, where does your brain go to, to make that switch and that call to, to use, to use your voice and try and go at a different approach? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I wish I had a good, like introspective answer for you, but I think I was just scared. So I just, <laughs> I just started talking to her and then like, I was like, Oh, she's more scared than I am. Uh, obviously when she turned around and put her ears down and put her butt toward me. Um, and I think like, um, there's a lot in humans and wolves that are, I particularly think, way deep in our DNA because there's a guy, uh, a researcher out of the Yukon. Uh, he's retired now, Bob Hayes. He wrote a book um, about wolves up there. And he said there was a historic uh, wolf den that he found out about that was generations and generations old. Um, and he went to visit it. And when he crawled inside, there was a, a tip of a, an arrowhead stuck in the roof of the den. And they aged it, and I think he aged it like two or three thousand years old. So, like the point I'm making is that humans and wolves have yeah evolved together, been pulled tug for a long time. So there's a lot probably in our DNA that we just don't recognize. Um, that's just sort of innate to both species and how we interact with each other. How do you convey those facts? Do you try and? And sort of weave that into your teaching, into your field work. Is there a way that you're trying to pull from both sides when you when you do your your research? And so that people really kind of get it from both ends. Like you said, when you have students that come to you and, and how they're evolving, are you trying to impart that wisdom on them? Um, I think some students kind of come naturally to the the sort of naturalist, like they get out in the woods and they're comfortable in the woods and they're comfortable around animals. Like some people are, some students just come in like that and other students come in um, with another skill set where they, they really like math. They really like models. They really like uh, ecological theory and, 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 and sometimes it seems like it comes at a cost of being a good naturalist. And, and, and so you kind of have to bring those two. My goal is to have a student that can do both, right? That's a good, like you can put them out in the woods and they can go find wolves and they can make good decisions on the fly, but they can also be hell of a scientist sitting behind a keyboard, mashing numbers to make sense of the data they collected. That's my goal is to have a student that can, that can kind of is good at both, like the Swiss army knife of yeah. biology. <laughs> That's a good wow. t-shirt. So when you're doing these techniques, yeah, that should be a t-shirt. That's a great idea. When you were, when you're teaching these, cause you, you pride yourself, it seems a lot on the non-invasive method. 
So what are some, uh, in terms of collecting wolf samples and obviously collaring wolves is a completely invasive part that has to be done for, the, for, for that specific process. So where do you use your non-invasive methods in order to collect data when you're studying a pack or studying particular wolves? What, what are some of the things that you're, you're practicing? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, we started developing methods to, to replace trapping and collaring because like you said, it's super stressful, it's expensive, it's just dangerous. Um, a lot of it's done aerially, which is dangerous for humans. Uh, it's, you know, flying around a helicopter mm. a couple feet off the ground is kind of dangerous in a forest. Uh, so uh, we developed some alternatives to see if we could, can we still get the data we need to measure the health of the population without having to do all this collaring? And we found we could. Um, so one of the things we sort of, we developed a few things. Um, one was um, you basically put out um, stinky stuff mm -hmm. and wolves like to come roll in stinky stuff, just like your dog. If you walk your dog down at the beach, it likes to roll a dead fish, right? Like it's the same thing, but you can get hair samples from them. And from that hair, you can get DNA and count, start to count wolves. Um, another thing we did was develop a acoustic recorder. So basically a device that uh, you put out in the woods and it broadcasts wolf howls and then records for a little time afterwards. So it just does howl surveys for you on a specified sort of schedule. Um, that takes a lot of the labor out of howl surveys. And of course, you can count wolves from howls and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, and one of the last things we did was like, well, how the heck do we find wolves? Like you can, you can, you can get hairs from them and you can do howls, but like, like where the heck do you go to find them? Right. Cause they move 10 miles a night and like, it's, it's just a needle in a haystack. So, um, we made a, a habitat model that predicts where they put their pups in summertime because the pups are relatively immobile and can't hunt with the pack. So if you can find those spots where they stash the pups, you can get scat samples from every pup or every animal in the pack, basically. And that you can get DNA from the scats. So, so that gave us like, instead of a needle in a haystack, it was a, like a needle in a hay bale, right? Like you still need, like I said, the 20 year olds to go abuse uh, to find them. Um, but you can get tons of DNA samples. And, and then recently, the last thing we've done in recent years is, try and move to cameras for some of our work um, just because they can sit out there in the woods and just, again, survey for you all day, all night. And the technology has gotten so good with those cameras. They're really reliable now. Right. It's wild because a lot of folks still mention collars as the, the state of the art data collection device. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Uh, but aside from the dangers of collaring, what were the gaps specifically in data collection provided by traditional collars that you felt could be filled better by other methods? Yeah, man, you guys are stupid. These are great questions. Um, so, so collars, I think you're right. Like the, the, I think there's even a report written like the gold standard of wolf, you know, research methodology or something like that. And it's like collars, uh, which you know, if you want to look at wolf movement and things like that, um, yeah, you kind of need to put something on them so you can see where they go, right? Like that's, that makes sense. Um, yeah, but for our purposes that, um, you know, we were really interested in knowing 
every individual in the pack, right. their relationships to one another, and how that might change once we started hunting and trapping. So, and you, it's even with a budget of ten million dollars a year, you couldn't collar every wolf in every pack. Like you can't, you just can't catch every single one. You can't keep collars out. They chew them off. They just like don't cooperate with the program. Uh, but you can get scat from every wolf, and you can identify them genetically. And then for, through some statistical models, you can figure out the relationships between individuals in a pack. So you get much finer detail on individual wolves and much um, the data on packs is in its entirety. You know everybody in the family, not just who's collared and who you see from a plane when you're flying over them in the wintertime, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I always wondered this about scat collection. I, I, I grew up in Connecticut and I... I live in Colorado now, but I grew up in Connecticut and not too long ago, they, a mountain lion died on the highway there. And they were saying that it potentially came from the Dakotas and they could tell through scat. Um, can you tell us in more in finer detail about how scat could possibly tell you where an animal's been and something is what seemingly complex like migration patterns? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Basically, as the the fecal material goes to the intestine, um, it rubs on the intestinal walls. Mm. And what, what you get, you don't even need the whole scat. You need a little piece from the side of the scat because that's where the sloughed off intestinal cells are. So we just get a little vial and it's got DNA of the animal in it. And basically, mm. you know, you inherit uh, an allele from your mom and an allele from your dad. And if you look, at a whole bunch of loci, a whole bunch of locations in your DNA, I can start to tell who you are if I have enough of those because you differ from another animal that I collected because you have different parents, right? And if you do that for a whole bunch of animals and a whole bunch of populations, you can start to see this population tends to have these alleles, right? And these tend to have these alleles. And when they look at those scats, they can kind of tell, like, well, it's a, and it's a probability, like it's a, you know, 75% probably is from the Dakotas. It's a 15% probably is from Florida. Like it's a, a continuum, right? It's not a, a perfect thing, but that's basically essentially what you do. It's almost like looking at um, accents in people across the United States. Right. Like we all speak English. They're all mountain lions but there's different accents depending on where you live. And you can tell that from the DNA. And there's a, there, there's a longstanding database of these alleles that, that you're mentioning that you can compare to, or this database was collected during the time period of this specific study. Yeah. So um, it's, it's a little bit of both. So the lab that I use for the wolf stuff here at university of Idaho um, has been doing wolf stuff kind of in the, the Western North America um, for 20 plus years. So we have a, a huge library of like, this is what wolves look like genetically. Mm. And we also have, you know, uh, this is what dogs look like genetically because they're similar. Um, but, but they're different enough genetically that, that we can tell. So we don't want to, you know, if I pick up a, a, a dog scat by accident right. when I'm out in the woods, I want to be able to make sure that I know that wasn't a wolf. So um, actually just, a week or two ago, they did, they'll do a call every few years here on campus of like, hey, if you have a dog at home, come grab a sample from us, 
sample kit and we basically take a cheap cheek swab of all our dogs so we can keep updating the dog database so we know what dogs look like. That's cool. Uh, so it's, it's kind of fun. We have a huge, yeah, just a huge reference library here on campus. Is that changing over time, by the way, now that you're mentioning that? Is, is dog DNA changing over time? Like does the, the code, genetic code of dogs, is it looking different now than maybe it did 100 years ago? Um, well, yeah. I mean, we have new sort of strains of dogs all the time, right? And and really, I think what, what people, um, maybe your listeners, you guys might know, but some listeners, um, like every time an animal uh, is is made, uh, the DNA changes, right? Mm. There's there's mutation. There's just random mutation every time uh, a cell sort of replicates in that sexual process. Um, that's why we have a hard time keeping up with COVID, right? Because right? every time it's in somebody's body, it mutates a little bit, right. and it mutates a little bit the next time, and the next time, and the next time. So you get these different strains over time that are tough to 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 keep track of. So yes. They've changed, um, but not enough that like, you know, a Dachshund can't mate with a Husky. Right. <laughs> like if they physically could, uh, they're still the same species. Sure. Uh, there's just all these different like crazy strains, but given enough time, um, you know, I'm sure there's some dog strains that in a hundred years won't be able to mate oh, with other, they'll be different species. Right? That's incredible. Mm. So when you're doing this and you're collecting these samples, how does this go into measuring density and measuring the population? So you're collecting all these, you know, strains of hair and, and scat and house surveys. Is that how you're building your database in terms of the density of population in these certain areas? Are, are, and are you strictly limited to Idaho? Do you go outside of Idaho at all? Or, you know, where, where are we, where are you collecting data from? Yeah. Um, so, so there's kind of two ways we've been estimating density. Um, I've largely worked in Idaho. I have done some work in Alberta and Yellowstone as well. Um, but my long-term wolf research has largely been in Idaho. Um, so basically you go out and you get these scats and you dump it into a statistical model and say, um, you know, every time there's a new genotype, there's a new uh, fingerprint per se, that's a new individual. But um, sometimes I recapture the same individual, right? Because a wolf will poop more than once at a rendezvous site. So I want the model to account for that, those, those recaptures. So it doesn't say there's 47 wolves in a pack. It'll say there's, there's 10, right? And it'll account for the fact that using those sort of rates, it'll account for the fact that sometimes I miss wolves because sometimes they're there and you just don't sample them because they're tough to sample. Um, so that's one way to estimate density. Uh, the other way recently is with cameras and you basically, it's kind of on the notion of like, uh, if, if you put out a whole bunch of cameras, it's this notion that um, if you have an area with not many wolves and you have a camera out, it should take you like a month to get your first picture of a wolf, right? Whereas if you have that camera in an area with a lot of wolves, it'll take you like a day. So it uses that sort of relationship to estimate wolf density. That's sort of the logic behind them. They get pretty mathematically complicated way beyond my pay grade. Um, <laughs> but that's the gist. So when you're, all right. So when you get these numbers and you're, you're talking about density and you have an idea 
of how these packs are functioning inside and out of the... Well, does it take into account also that obviously wolves can traverse tens of miles in a day, you know, sometimes up to 30, 40 miles a day if they need to to look for food. Have you ever run into situations where you're studying these wolves in Idaho, these specific packs in Idaho, and you get maybe some neighboring wolves that are coming outside of Yellowstone or coming out in Montana? Have you ever had those instances and where do you put that in your database? Is that separate to what you're collecting or is it going to the entirety of your research? Yeah. So um, we've had animals kind of immigrating, emigrating in and out of our study areas for years. Um, you know, one of our, one of the first uh, males we genetically sampled came out of Wyoming below Yellowstone Park. He went all around Idaho and ended up setting up shop in one of our study areas. And he actually bred like three females the first year he was <laughs> the breeding male. So he didn't waste any time uh, after he dispersed. Uh, and that's another example of something you wouldn't get from collars. Like you wouldn't know that he bred all three females. Like that's incredible, but we know that from the DNA, right? We could tell all 14 pups are his. He's just a busy guy. Um, but uh, yeah, we have had wolves immigrating in and out. Um, one thing, and, and we keep uh, those rates kind of in our models. Um, one thing we found, we, we kind of thought that, um, you know, a lot of the studies of wolf hunting and trapping come from northern North America, where there's just like lots of wolves and not, not as many people as down here. Um, and it says that well, when you hunt and trap wolves, it's kind of like digging a hole in the sand, like just more sand comes in, right? More wolves come in when you take wolves out. And we found that that wasn't true just because of what you mentioned, John. Um, we could tell if wolves had immigrated into a pack or not. And what we were finding is like, no, pack size just declined. They're not, they don't like to accept wolves that aren't from the family, right? So unless there's a breeding slot open, they don't tend to just adopt wolves just to maintain a big pack size is what we found, which was counterintuitive because we just thought like, well, they'll just adopt strays basically and keep a big pack size so they can kick ass. But that's not what we found at all. Um, they don't, if you're not, if you're not from the family, they don't really like you very much. Right. Um, in, in your mind, what does what does wolf density tell you about the rest of the ecosystem in a given area? Yeah, um, I don't know that I can I can speak much to that other than what's in the literature. Um, I know, you know, they, they found in Yellowstone a lot of papers, and there's a lot of scientific argument that I don't think the public cares too much about because it's a good story um, that you know they they brought wolves back in. Elk numbers were reduced and you started having, uh, you know, riparian areas come back because they weren't just mowed down by elk anymore. And with that came habitat for beavers and songbirds. And all. so this trophic cascade, right, of really structuring an ecosystem. Um, we haven't seen that. Uh, as far as I know, we haven't seen that outside the park. And that may just be because people haven't looked as hard. Um, or that, you know, Yellowstone was such a unique system where wolf density got 
elk density was very high when they reintroduced, like a ridiculously high. I mean, they're basically just starving in the wintertime <laughs> when we reintroduced wolves. Uh, and then wolf density got so high, like five times higher than anywhere recorded on Earth, pretty much. Um, so it's kind of a unique, like, I don't know, it'd be like studying the ecology of something on the moon, right? It's just so hard to know, like, where you can put those inferences outside of the moon. Like, it's just tough to know. Yeah, um, and it is a very romantic and clean theory, but it, it seems that outside the unique scope of the park, it's it's much harder to show that it is the case. But I meant more like... uh if there's a low wolf density or a high wolf density, what does it say about the surrounding environment? Is it simply pointing to enough food or what are the elements that make a low or high wolf density possible? Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, what we've found in Idaho, um, where you have enough food, right? You get wolves. So where we had, um, say before we started hunting and trapping where you had high density wolves was like, um, core habitat in Idaho, elk, wilderness areas, national forests, and low low density areas. They were low density just because, like, the habitat was decent. They'd follow elk there, um, but there's also starts to be this creeping of of human development. So so wolves would get into cows, they'd get into sheep, and then and then they're removed from the population after they do that. Um, so it's. it's a, it's a human maintained low density, right? Um, and like, what was interesting is that, um, so in my study areas, like we have not the same now, but um, you can kind of imagine like the same number of packs that we had since we started hunting and trapping, but density is way different now than it was before we started hunting and trapping. So it's just pack sizes that got smaller. So you have, you still have say 10 packs, but each pack is only four or five wolves. Whereas before it was 10 packs of 10 to 12 wolves. So there's the same number of packs, just fewer wolves. And, and that is a artifact again of human pressure, right? So that's wolf density could be higher, but it's not because humans are, are reducing pack size. Um, and obviously we've seen in other areas, um, not in Idaho so much, but certainly where prey um, declines, wolves just just mirror that decline right um certainly prey crashes will create low wolf density so will disease outbreaks parvovirus distemper mange all those things can really affect wolves because they're social so they tend to pass diseases easily between each other based on all that in in your in your research does it seem that lethal management is is a necessity in controlling populations in terms of carrying capacity or or is it case by case you sort of have to factor in uh prey availability proximity of territory to urban areas um and of course some amount of social appeasement i i assume yeah it's a sticky question i mean if you ask um if you were to ask that of people in some european countries it's no we don't you don't need to kill them. You just need to pay people whose lives they impact. Right. Yeah. So, so in, um, reindeer herds in you know, Northern Scandinavia, if you, if you're a reindeer herder and you find wolf tracks, they just pay you money. Like you don't need to show that they killed your reindeer. Mm. You just show that you were like potentially impacted by wolves and society says, 
we want wolves. We're going to put our money where our mouth is and we're just going to pay you for the, for your troubles. Thanks. Um, so it's, a, it's a, like a way different system than we have. So certainly in, in the Northern Rockies, um, I think the people involved with rule free introduction in the early years, uh, the Ed Bangs and the Mike Jimenez folks of the world would tell you, uh, if they had not had the ability to deal with, um, livestock depredations or quote problem wolves, it would have been a lot harder to recover wolves. Uh, they just, like you, you said it in your question, um, they kind of needed that flexibility. I don't know if it's social appeasement, um, whatever word you want to use, but it, um, if people maintain a little bit of power to do something about a problem, even if you don't use that power, exactly. um, they feel better, sure. right? Like if a rancher has the ability to shoot a wolf that's chasing its cattle uh, or a wolf that's hanging off the back of its cattle, whatever the rule is, uh, even if they never do it, there's, there's a lot more acceptance. There's a lot more, okay, you're, you're trying to recognize that I could have a big problem here. And you're trying to do something about it. So I, it depends on who you ask culturally, right? Some people will say, no, you don't need to kill wolves. They'll, they'll build up to a density and they fight each other and they sort of level out. And we, that's true. Like we did see that in Idaho, like it pretty much maxed out. Like there was nowhere else for wolves to go that they wouldn't get into trouble right away. Um, so it, mm. it sort of flattened out. Um, but, you know, they end up then in areas when you do disperse. If you're a young wolf, you end up in sheep and cows and downtown Boise. Yeah, by then they're in trouble already. Yeah, it's like usually not good for you, right? right. Yeah. So with that being said, and I know, I mean, so if you, if from your professional perspective, then it seems as though the the population, as you just stated, is is really at that plateau where it, you know, many more, you know, any more wolves were kind of at a tipping point and they have nowhere else to go or they'll just emigrate out of. Idaho and go to different states. So what are the, what are the measures or, or what is something that you feel is a way that you can monitor and handle that population so that it's like you said, there can be appeasement all the way around because what Steven and I have encountered a lot is our individuals that work with organizations that deal with coexistence. They do factor in the the livestock and the sheep industry and and how, as you were stating before, how these individuals are trying to make a living and they really do keep the wild places wild out there because so much private land is owned by generationally. So what are the what are the tools then from from you as a professional that you think are, are best suited to to keep this balance going? Is it, I mean, do you feel like it's imbalanced in Idaho right now, or is it a little bit one way or the other? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I think in 2009, I just want to be clear, in 2009, we we're probably at the most wolves we had in Idaho, the highest density. Um, we started hunting and trapping after that, and density has gone down. Um, but the population is like, it's not screaming toward extinction. It's not shooting through the roof. It's kind of just stable. Um, as best we can tell. In the last few years, they've really ramped up hunting and trapping. Uh, and I suspect we'll see declines in density. So I do think there's room now for more wolves in Idaho, if that's what people wanted. Um, ecologically, there could be more wolves in Idaho than there are now. 
um, if that's what people decided they wanted. Right now, that's not what Idahoans are deciding they want. Um, so as far as tools, um, you know, if you're going to strike a, a, quote, balance, I think as scientists in particular, we need to really keep working on ways to avert livestock depredations. Um, you know, it's it's hard because, um, I don't know another way to say this, uh, like the economics of it, like bullets are cheap, right? So like, unless you come up with a way that's like, economically uh like people aren't going to use it because it's like well it's just easier to have a federal agency pay for it and go remove the wolves like that's just the fact of it so and and it's not a, a pretty fact but it is a fact um but we need to keep working on ways to keep wolves out of sheep and cows and i think we also need to recognize that um like we tend to focus on the livestock industry is when we talk about the, the conflict of having wolves around, but in Idaho, a lot of it's driven by uh, big game hunters and trapping organizations. Like it's not, mm. it's not so much the livestock industry that's, that's loud and showing up at all these meetings. It's, it's people saying like, I've hunted this area for 20 years and I don't see elk there anymore. And I'm pissed. Right. I want you to do something about it. And I know it's the wolves. That's like the, and there's a, uh, they just have a lot of uh, sway in Idaho right now. And it's like the perfect storm of livestock people being concerned. And then uh, big game hunters, I would say, is kind of another word for general public in Idaho. <laughs> a lot of people here hunt and fish and do a lot of outdoor stuff. And that's just a, they just have a lot of political power because it's such a part of our, our heritage here. Um, so we have to, I think, be aware that wolves have changed the behavior of ungulates um, probably in areas they've changed ungulate density. And that like that affects people because we compete for the same meat. basically. Yeah. And that's, that's the tough part because I mean, theoretically they could, they could be, they're obviously affecting elk density to some degree. That would just be ridiculous, but they are to some degree, but even if they're not affecting it to a large degree, they're still moving elk in ways that maybe they haven't been moved in a long time. And I guess that's, that's just as meaningful to people who've been hunting for generations as, you know, as it would be if they were really extremely affecting density. Yeah. I, th I think you're right. We tend to, you know, you go out hunting and if you see elk in a spot, that's kind of where you go the next year. Yeah, yeah. You're like, well, I saw elk here last year. Um, and if that changes, um, you know, I think uh, the, the, there's been a lot of changes to the West that affect hunting. Um, access, uh, a lot of private lands are kind of blocked off now. They're really good elk habitat. Um, uh, motorized access has gone nuts. Um, 20 years ago, not that many people hunted by ATV. Now it's like yeah. everybody's, but that stuff has changed gradually. And the wolf stuff was overnight. So I think when people see changes in their hunting area, they think, well, the only thing that's changed is wolves. And they don't kind of factor in like, well, actually the entire Valley bottom now is a private ranch that doesn't allow any hunting. So all the elk just go there on day opening day. Uh, it's just, they don't, 
I don't think they factor in all of the variables that affect hunting success sometimes. But I'm with you that certainly in some areas, it would seem that wolves could affect. Yeah, and there there are probably a lot of a lot of factors. I mean, yeah. I think people forget also, and I say this from a loving place as I am an avid hiker and backpacker, but the reality is <clears throat> there are millions of folks out on trails just hiking every year. And we assume that hikers have this neutral footprint, but you know, folks sauntering through the woods are are also moving game and they're having an effect on animals and their success and access to food sources. And we can also change their behavior. So I don't hear it mentioned very often, but there are several things in impacting critters in this way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so in your studies then, Dave, what's, what's the, what's the, the cause and effect here that, that you're dealing with or, or that I guess Idaho as a state is sort of trying to deal with right now is that are, are, are these measures, and I know we're sort of on the fringes of SB 1211, and I know that, you know, we, we're, we're kind of tiptoeing around it a little bit. But I mean, are, are there things in place that are, are, are not going to affect the ecology at large to a degree where there'll be incredibly widespread changes? Or do, we, do you think, as, again, as a professional, as a scientist, that things will, there'll be a spike and then it'll sort of plateau and even out? Or... Is it going to spike for a little bit and then it's going to drop? I mean, where do you sort of see a lot of these measures? Again, if you can speak to it, that is the framework still being worked out to try and keep this balance going a little bit? Or, or are we in for sort of a rocky rocky road here for a little bit? Um, yeah, I, don't, I honestly don't think anyone knows. I mean, that's why we're still, I was going to stop my wolf project two years ago, because I was like, well, I've kind of answered a bunch of stuff. I don't want to just keep studying them just to study them. You, I mean, even with non-invasive techniques, you're, right. you're kind of bothering them. <laughs> um, but then they ramped up hunting and trapping. So it's like, well, they're not studying, you know, nobody else is studying this. So well, I kind of want to see if it's going to have an effect. Um, so I think the science is still out on whether it's going to have an effect. They they want it to. I mean, that's the clearly stated purpose is to reduce the wolf population. That's not a secret. And I don't think that, um, I don't see if, if we get two years down the line, it's like, yeah, we did all that and we didn't reduce the wolf population. I don't think it's going to stop there. I think they're going to want to keep trying to reduce the wolf population. Um, so, I mean, if you, if you're uh, a wolf conservationist, then yeah, I'd say using your words, you know, it's a rocky road ahead for wolves. I don't, I don't see this changing anytime soon, honestly. Do you think this is, what's going to change you think in your, cause you said you were ready to shut this down two years ago yourself. What is, what is your approach? How is your approach differed now? What are, what are the things that you're looking for in the data that you're collecting as you move forward with this in the next, you know, let's just say, you know, two to three years, what are you, what are you looking for? Yeah, that's a good question, John. Um, so at, when we look before at the effects of hunting and trapping, we know that it reduces pups arrival. So the number of pups that make it to age one is roughly cut in half. 
Um, but that was at harvest rates of like 15 to maybe 30%. And I'm guessing we're going to be a lot higher than 30% now. So what I'm kind of thinking is that that's going to have impacts to the pack as a whole. So it's going to increase breeder turnover, which we know the breeders have a disproportionate effect. It's basically the mom and dad of the pack. And then if they die, it has a disproportionate effect on other wolves. So like, it's this idea that um, not all wolves are created equal, right? Like if you subtract one from pack size, that's not the effect of harvest. Like it's, it's, it's who died and when is what matters. Um, so we're trying to figure that out. And certainly uh, what we've been finding in the genetic data is that um, when a, a breeding female dies, uh, three quarters of the time, it's a, one of her older daughters from within the pack that will inherit the breeding position. They, they don't, they inherit the kingdom rather than go out and storm the castle somewhere else, right? So if you're harvesting those older females in packs, how does that then, if you harvest a breeder and there's no older females in the pack, like what the heck happens? Do they get, because if you have some older females, the breeding females just replaced pretty quickly, no big deal. Um, Population-wise, no big deal. But if you don't have those females in the queue, that's probably going to have an impact on your population, right? Because they're only in estrus for a few days in the winter. So if you miss, if a pack misses that like window, you're going to miss reproduction for an entire year. Um, so that's some of the things we're looking at. It's just, I feel like hunting and trapping will increase a lot. And we saw, saw in 2020, they harvested over 600 wolves in Idaho, which is a lot. Usually it's between... 250 and 350. So harvest has gone up and I expect we'll see differences in packs because of it. I have two questions uh, that just came up when you're, you're talking there. How does a, I assume it's scent, but I wonder if it's more complex than that. How does a male know that a female is in estrus during that short period? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a mix of scent. Uh, you know, they'll have uh, blood in their urine markings well before they're you know, sort of ready to go. Uh, and then they're basically like with them. The, they're, they're essentially, because um, some people don't know this, but a female, and we found this in our data, um, so she could have six pups, four of them by one male, two of them sired by another. So the male who's trying to breed her, like doesn't really want to leave her alone for those few days because there's these sneaker males that will come in and sire one of the pups. But what happens is like the main breeding male then is stuck raising pups that aren't his. Right. Like he doesn't really want to do. Uh, so they tend to, if she's an estrus mm. for three or four days, they're like pretty tight. Uh, they'll, they'll copulate multiple times, you know, over those few days. Um, but yeah, it's kind of scent that they find them if they're not already paired. Um, they find them through scent marks and stuff like that. Okay, so so uh, individuals from other packs won't migrate to new packs, but males from other packs will find females from other packs in estrus to mate with them. Is that is that what's happening? Yeah. So 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 wolves will. I want to be clear. So wolves will migrate to adjacent pack, but gen generally we only see it when there's a breeding vacancy. Got it. So. So like a pack won't just adopt a two-year-old male 
unless there's a breeding male vacancy. And when they adopt him, he becomes the breeder immediately. So, so basically it's only when you only get a stepmom or stepdad when mom or dad has died, essentially. Um, they don't just, you don't just get step siblings just because. Uh, so, but they do have, I have had in our data, um, about 10% of our pups are sired by what we call sneaker males. So these are males that are unaffiliated with the pack. I have no idea what their deal is. I have no idea how they do it, but they'll sire like one of the six pups and they're like not around in this. They don't stay and help do their job like they're supposed to. Uh, they just dump it on the breeding male and take off. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. It's those sneaker males. That's the first time I think I've heard that term as a sneaker male. That's interesting. Um, sneaker male. So Dave, moving forward, what's your, what's your outlook? It could be general. It could be specific about where you think or how you think this population in Idaho is going to, I guess, differ or you know, continue to, to thrive or to, or to, to exist in this state, do you, what do you foresee in, in the things that you're gathering already and, and the, the way the climate is sort of shifting? What, is that going to be a, a basis for your research for you and your students to, to really see how this all plays out? Yeah. Um, so right now I plan on continuing the whole work in Idaho for at least another three or four years, see what effect, if any, these changes um, to, to regulations have had. Uh, it depends what the legislature does down the road. You know, if they ramp it up even more, then we'll we'll stick at it because somebody's uh, somebody's got to measure the potential impact, right? Like you can't just, I don't know, walk away and assume it'll be okay. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people don't realize because um, when you hear of wolves being reintroduced, you usually hear wolves reintroduced to Yellowstone, right? It's always followed with to Yellowstone. Uh, Idaho was the same reintroduction. It was the same day, the same like bunch of wolves, the same airplanes, everything. Uh, and Idaho's the core of the wolf population in the Northern Rockies. Like Idaho's why Oregon has wolves. It's why Washington has wolves. And, um, by sequential logic, it's why California has wolves. Uh, so, so they're the core of of the population here. Um, I do think Idaho is going to have some places that just aren't going to have wolves. Like under the new uh, legislation, I just don't see how some places in Idaho are are going to have wolves at all. It's just not going to be wolf uh, habitat. And I use habitat to be inclusive of where they're tolerated. Um, but like, we also have a huge wilderness area in the center of the state that does have some good wolf habitat, probably has, we know it has pretty low harvest, um, maybe 10% of our harvest a year is from the capital W wilderness. So unless the state, you know, goes to really draconian, you know, poison kind of stuff, um, I think we'll be all right if they do take that next step. I'd, I'd be really worried because people forget like wolves are really fecund. They're, they're smart. Um, and people are like, well, you can't 
you can't really wipe out walls. And it's like, well, like we did before yeah. with tool, with tools that weren't nearly as effective <laughs> as what we did. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we can wipe them out again. Uh, that's just a fact. We could, if we wanted to, um, I think the question is, is that where we're going to decide to go? Um, they say, you know, I said it's going to honor the, the 150 that they agreed to, but there's not much enthusiasm for many more than that in the legislature right now. And right now the legislature's, you know, making the calls on, on wolf management. It's kind of out of the, they've really taken it out of the, the fish and wildlife agency's hands. Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to see where this goes. And, you know, uh, I'm going to ask you one last question. Then I, I'll, uh, I want you to promote, any any of your any of your work your social media things like that so people can keep up to date on on your research because I think it's it, it's something that we haven't touched upon is is really how you know wolf densities and how it you know we we're really trying to hit everything here so I the, the information that you you share here today is is fantastic so my final question is when you hear the word wolf what is the thing that comes to your mind uh yeah boy Oh no, good question. It to me, um personally, uh personally, maybe not even speaking as a scientist, uh an area is not as wild if it doesn't have wolves. It's just not as wild to me. There's I, Colorado, no offense to you, <laughs> Colorado's beautiful. Uh and maybe now a, a little corner of Colorado is 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 wild by my definition, but I I go to Colorado and it's beautiful, but there's like, it's just like missing something. Areas that have wolves are just, just, I don't know. They're just wild to me. And that's important to me personally. Um, like, yeah, I think that's the best answer I can give. Yeah, no, it, it's so true. There's definitely a, a fundamental mm. difference between traveling in the backcountry in places like Montana versus other Western states that don't have wolves or grizzly so i personally am excited to see some of that element come back to these forests sure and if we can't you know if we can't have them like we have these large wilderness areas and protected areas it's like well if we if we can't have wolves there where the hell can we have them? like there's got to be some place where we can kind of have both humans and wolves and and not not be at each other's throats so to speak that's a great way. That's a that's a great point by both of you. Dave, please tell everybody where they can, you know, see any of the publications that you have. I know you, I think you have a couple papers and, and some research that you've done, social media. Please, you know, dump it out into the world. Let people know where they can they can follow you, look for stuff. Uh yeah, I I appreciate it. I am uh purposely old school. Um I I mean, it's kind of hilarious now to think that like I'm not on social media because uh, I, I don't want people to know about my personal life because anybody could find that out in five seconds. But uh, I, I occasionally get um, sort of threatening correspondences. So I don't like to be on social media for that reason. Studying wolves is kind of weird. Um, but I do have uh, a super rinky-dink, boring 2D uh, <laughs> faculty page at the University of Idaho. Just 
just look up David Osband, A-U-S-B-A-N-D, and I've got papers up there, a few little, you know, fun short videos about our research. Um, and yeah, certainly I really like um, talking to the public about, I like that people care about carnivores and wolves and like, I entertain emails and phone calls all the time. So I would encourage people if they really want to get in touch to just like, just reach out to me. I'll call people back and email people that's back. Awesome. I'm just old school. Mm, that's good. <laughs> no, that's great. I love that. And I feel like that's the, that's the, the teacher in you and the, and the professor there that comes out that you want to teach and, and promote everything. I love it. And listen, Dave, I, this has been re- again, really great, a fantastic conversation. And I, I, I appreciate the work that you're doing in the state that you're doing it in and the line that you're walking to be able to get this information out there. So I, all my kudos are to you to, to continue this work. And I, you know, thank you for, for joining Stephen and myself. This was fantastic. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks guys. Yeah. It was a good time. I, I had fun. I, I like, um, you clearly <laughs> did research on your question. So I, I appreciate it. Not, People don't always do that. So I appreciate it. It was fun. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. David Ospan, everybody. And uh, yeah, give him an email. Shoot him a a call. Talk to this guy. He knows his stuff. How's to everybody out there. And Stephen and I will be with you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the donate tab, and find out more information.